Let's wait for the... Others think it's a peddler who had recently passed... Oh, f***ing Are you kidding me? The whole building's clearly on fire. This might be our cold open that was just doing a smash cut of all the sirens. Also, Mrs. Dolly Winthrop, a kind-hearted and kind of pragmatic... Oh my god. Are you absolutely shitting me? I suppose, like, Nancy is so improbably perfect in a... What is happening? Is... Trouble brewing, mark my words. Did somebody eat gluten at a Whole Foods? What is uh, happening? Maybe in South Birmingham. North Birmingham has its own problems. Welcome to Save Me From My Shelf, a literature podcast where we take classic tomes off their pedestal to make you less anxious about reading them. Our jokes come from a place of love and for a specific teaching purpose. However, if you think that making fun of great literature, and maybe some mild swearing, is offensive, this might not be the podcast for you. Hello, you are listening to Save Me From My Shelf. This red coat billeted in my office is Daniel. This United Empire loyalist sitting opposite me is Abby. Vermont wasn't even in the revolution, was okay, it? Okay, so, you know what, friend? <laughs> don't be talking smack about Vermont. We're very painfully aware that we are the 14th state, yeah. not part of the 13 colonies. We know. You have to earn the right to even... I, give Vermont's name I, out of your mouth. I think I have earned it. See, this is not only our end of season two, this is also our 25th episode and our year one anniversary. Uh, year one. First year anniversary. Yeah. <laughs> Weirdly, this episode should be coming out a year to the day that we released our first episode, Frankenstein, which is a little rough around the edges, but I'm I'm fond of it. We've made some pretty big changes since we released that. So, Daniel, what is our text today? Long-term listeners will know that we've made the occasional foray into the Shakespeare authorship debate. So, do you want to briefly explain? There are different conspiracy theories about if Shakespeare wrote his own works, if he existed at all, if he was one person or two or ten or what yeah. have you. We had that one listener who even claimed that Shakespeare was a fabrication entirely made up by the Warwickshire Tourist Board. Do you remember that one? That How was... could I forget? It's the best letter we've ever received. Yes, yes, it was good. But I kind of realise now that this cannot be true because not one of the Bard's plays except very tentatively as you like it, is set in his home county. He left the West Midlands for London and forgot about his home region. I ask you, Shakespeare, why can't you be like another of your uh, compatriots, the author of our present text? Yeah, okay, she changed her name. But she never forgot her West Midland roots. It's George Eliot. We're doing 1861's Silas Marner. So, it goes without saying, we are about to spoil this book for you. The trigger warnings are animal injury, death, infertility, drug addiction, miscarriages of justice, and, Daniel helpfully put here, dialect? Yeah, I'm going to be doing some Midlands accents, but I've had a bit of a tour of the British Isles lately, haven't I? And I'm bringing it back home. Are we going to finally hear your real accent? Because I know you're... Yeah, this is my telephone voice. You're poshing it yeah. up for the listeners, <laughs> yeah. Would you like to do some background, please? Sure. George Eliot. Nice to finally have a bloody bloke also, isn't it? <laughs> no, that's a joke. 
because she was a lady. <laughs> Her real name was Mary Ann Evans. She was from Nuneaton in Warwickshire. Nuneaton's beautiful. I always summer there. Yeah, I've got a bloody love. Yeah, proper spa resort place, isn't it? She's a big mid-Victorian novelist. Like six foot five. Big novels, big person, big standing in the gotcha. literary firmament. She also wrote The Mill on the Floss in 1860 and Middle March in 1872. Those are probably uh, the two most famous of her works. She was big into provincial life, especially in the Midlands, wasn't she? So she's not like one of your kind of classic Dickensian-style Victorian urban novelists. Yeah, if there's no chance for a corn maze, my girl ain't interested. So she was a kind of Victorian liberal type. She was interested in women's rights, education, class relations, secularism, ethnic minorities and stuff. She lived in Sin with George mm. Henry Lewis, sort of noted literary mediocrity. Um, <laughs> so she wasn't afraid to call controversy on that front, neither was I, because I'm going to get the Lewis crowd are going to be really <laughs> laying into me now. You think she's a bit of a hypocrite, though, don't you, about on her, her feminist credentials aren't all that. In 1856, she wrote an essay where she goes to town on sort of jo any genre fiction geared at women, and she clearly thought, like, what I do is better than that and I'm the exception and women shouldn't be right. Like, it's just, it's, it's, you know, I find this really interesting because some of the books that she was talking about, she clearly is interested in them. She, she works things like sensation fiction into this very heavily. Mm. She puts it in very reductive terms and I just, you know... I think you should find she was ironizing the issue. I know some scholars have also speculated that her lack of conformity to conventional female values have contributed to this. So she, you know, she's working. First of all, she's a woman who works. Uh, she operates under a male pen name. She sort of lives in sin. So she isn't that sort of like, you know, virtuous woman. And she was also notably very ugly. Uh, so we have a little Robert Louis Stevenson connection here where he, uh, if you go back to our Jekyll and Hyde episode, Robert Louis Stevenson used to make straight dudes just fall in love with him for no reason. And Elliot, despite being very ugly, was so charming that people kept falling in love with her instantly. Which is the opposite of a lot of Victorian novelists who were massive hotties but had odious personalities. <laughs> Yeah. Well, a young Henry James met her in 1869 and he wrote, quote, She is magnificently ugly, deliciously hideous. She has a low forehead, a dull gray eye, a vast pendulous nose, <laughs> a huge mouth full of uneven teeth. Now, in this vast ugliness resides a most powerful beauty which, in a very few minutes, steals forth and charms the mind, so that you end as I ended, in falling in love with her. Yes, behold me, literally in love with this great horse-faced blue stocking. Well, that's coming from a gay guy as well. I know, and yeah, Henry James was very likely gay as well, so man, that's a powerful allure. She had another string to her bow, didn't she? Philosophy. She kind of wrote a lot of sort of philosophical essays and stuff and translated some major texts from German idealism. A lot of these were kind of atheistic, weren't they? Friend of the podcast. I'm, yeah. ass I'm assuming that the listeners of the podcast take after the hosts and are somewhere between kind of postmoderns, hyper-libertarians and crypto-fascists <laughs> and therefore all like Friedrich Nietzsche. He has a go at her in Twilight of the Idols, so if you're interested in Nietzsche's take on George Eliot, that's where to go. George Eliot thought that you could still have like the kind of Christian values without believing in God and Nietzsche's like, no, you can't do that. There's a lot of kind of philosophical stuff in her works, isn't there? And also it reads a bit like it's been tr translated from German. There's a lot of sub-clauses. It's very convoluted. Her sentences, yeah, are very, very complex. They're very beautifully written, but you, you could see the German sort of grammatical structure yeah. and things on them. I don't want to preempt the book we're about to recap, but this is very like 
You got your German idealism in my sensation fiction. Mm -hmm. You got your sensation fiction in my German idealism. The novel was written in the hypermodern 1860s, but it's set in years past, in the good old days, when peasants were rosy-cheeked and brawny. It's the dawn of the 19th century. The Industrial Revolution is localised only to a few northern cities. It's all just people tugging forelocks and doing like they've done for thousands of years. To everyone else, the kind of lean and grubby industrial workers look a bit like the remnants of a disinherited race. That's uh, a great quotation. Yeah, it's a great line. So there's this weaver named Silas Marner who lives in this rural village named Ravelo, but he didn't always live there. In fact, after 15 years there, he is still an outsider, having moved from the industrial north. Probably, what, what did you think it was? Manchester. I thought it was Manchester, yeah. yeah. So Silas is also this really weird guy, like he's hunched over and he lives alone, he's obsessed with gold, and creepiest of all, he occasionally falls into... I honestly don't know what to call it, a sort of spontaneous coma or something, mm. a trance, and people keep finding him, like, leaned up against a tree like he's just died there. Like, this is Rumpelstiltskin with narcolepsy. Silas has a really dark history. He used to live in this extremely religious community in a big city, and the community was called Lantern Yard, where everybody got real tight assholes. So he had this buddy named William Dane, he had a fiancé named Sarah, and Silas and William were so close, they're such good friends, that others called them David and Jonathan. Yep, got a queer reading right there. Mm. Old Testament queer reading. Mm, girl, the best kind of queer reading, yeah. I think. Oh, yeah. One day William starts to question whether Silas's weird trances or comas or whatever they are, if maybe they're more satanic in nature than godly. Mm. And Silas's fiancée, Sarah, She's also starting to cool on Silas a little bit, in part because of these accusations, and in part because, frankly, William's a bit of a babe, and she, I'm reading between the lines here, but she wants to do him like a crossword. William Dane is a hottie. Yeah, for... For, his... for an evangelical community, William Dane is. In... A bit like, what's her name in, um, what was it you said? In Lowood. Miss Temple. Miss Temple. Yeah, I'm bringing it all back. We're, we're, <laughs> the whole year, it's a year in Roundup. <laughs> Miss Temple, what was it? I right. think I said she was a four in Paris or London, but goddamn if she's not a ten at Lowood. Right, there we so go. William Dane is a bit like that. One day, a senior deacon at the church was taken ill, and Silas and William were tasked to attend him at his bedside. William never turns up during the attending, and Silas falls asleep watching over the deacon in his last moments, and is alone with the deacon when he died. Some money was stolen from the deacon's bedside. And Silas is blamed because, you know, he was there, and moreover, his pocket knife was conveniently found in the drawer where the deacon kept his money. You know, a bit of a smoking gun or whatever <laughs> knives do. Silas' friend William, he volunteers to search Silas's house, and he magically finds the money pouch there. This is the point where Silas realises that the last time he saw his pocket knife was to lend it to William. <gasps> yeah. You were my brother, Anakin! He's been set up. Silas agrees to take this to court. This is like the sort of church court, isn't it? Yeah. yeah they kind of keep themselves to themselves. And he knows that God will protect him. Unfortunately... God doesn't respond to subpoenas. <laughs> no. And indeed, he is found guilty. And they kick him out of the church. And Silas denounces God for his lack of justice, you know? Yeah, he's like, hey, God, uh, you can go drink a big tall glass of fuck you. And he says this in front of the congregation. And they all sort of gasp like a sitcom audience. 
This gives Sarah the excuse she needs, because he's a thief and a blasphemer, to break off her engagement with Silas. Later on, Silas finds out that William and Sarah got married. Oh, y'all better yeah. pick up the phone, because I called it. This is yeah. a textbook bros before hoes violation. And that's one of the founding principles of uh, <laughs> Calvinism or whatever uh, nonconformist <laughs> branch of Christianity they follow. So Silas packs up his shit and he moves to the Midlands. Yeah, that's why I didn't do this at the scene, because this does it for us. And what could be more unlike that lantern yard world than the world in Ravelo? Orchards looking lazy with neglected plenty. The large church in the wide churchyard, which men gazed at lounging at their own doors in service time. The purple-faced farmers jogging along the lanes or turning in at the rainbow, which is the village pub. Homestead, local gay bar, isn't it? Uh, <laughs> homesteads where men sopped heavily and slept in the light of the evening hearth, and where women seemed to be laying up a stock of linen for the life to come. Silas moves into an old stonecutter shed by a flooded quarry on the outskirts of town, and he takes up the sport of extreme weaving, if you consider weaving a sport, which I don't. So he's trying to basically weave his feelings away. <laughs> I would just say go to therapy, sir. But instead, he just ends up weaving so much so fast that people start to think that he has magical powers. Yeah. And this isn't helped when he sees a woman who's suffering from dropsy, which is the least pleasant of Peter Rabbit's siblings. <laughs> and he, so he gives her, he's like, oh, my mom suffered from dropsy as well. This was the sort of little remedy she used to take. So he gives this woman a tonic to ease her pain, even though the local doctor has been able to do nothing for Dr. her. Dr. Kimball. And everyone's like, Jesus fuck, is he a white wizard? What? Who is this guy? People pay him a lot for his weaving and medicine, and he quickly becomes filthy, stankin' rich. Okay, here's some sound financial advice for y'all. He digs a hole in the floor to hide his money. And Silas starts to, quote, enjoy their companionship, by which he means the coins. He loved them all. Every night he spread them out in heaps and bathed his hands in them. Then he counted them and set them up in regular piles and felt their rounded outline between his thumb and his fingers and thought fondly of the guineas that were only half earned by the work in his loom as they were unborn children. <laughs> It's a good line. Uh, well, I've worked my 16 hours. Time to go molest my gold. Yeah, that, yeah. He's a, he's a fondler. He's one of them gold fondlers. <laughs> yeah. The greatest man in Ravelo was Squire Cass. He's a landowner of the old school, isn't he? He likes to lounge around with his boots on. He eats ham-boiled and unctuous liquor. That's a line that we got. I don't know what... I don't what's know what, that? Uh, would that be... Is that rum? Ham-boiled ham and rum. <laughs> is that just an It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia joke? Rum ham. Sounds pretty good. Wake up with a headache after eating it, but... Oh, you would not believe the ham uh, I had last night. <laughs> never hamming again. Cass has two sons, Godfrey and Dunstan, a.k.a. Duncy. Which one's the good one, Daniel? If only we had a clue. What were their names again? Godfrey. Yeah. And Dunstan. Do you think Godfrey... God, 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 Godfrey. Mm. Uh, yeah, Duncy is a sociopath of the highest order, so he's a proper villain, and I think we should give him proper villain music. He's a bit of a boozer. He's a gambler. And a rambler. He's a good time guy. Uh, he's a spiteful, jeering fellow who seemed to enjoy his drink the more when other people went dry. Is he single? Yeah. <laughs> Squire's son, you're going to be a, somewhere on the twat scale, aren't you? Now, Godfrey's following in his younger brother's footsteps, and it's off-putting his as-good-as-betrothed local rich girl, Nancy Lameter. 
You're not a fan of hers, are you? Long story short, Godfrey gave £100 in rents that were intended for his dad, the squire, to Dunsey. £100 in today's money is... 87 million pounds. Sorry, I just like seeing the vein throb in your I didn't. Head. I didn't bother with a measuring word for this because I saved it for the big thing later on. You're going to come in and tell me I'm wrong anyway, so I might as well be really wrong. I think you're probably more... No, you're still going to be wrong. <laughs> um, so Godfrey gave Dunsey this money. I don't know why he would have done a thing like that. Maybe we'll find out very shortly. Oh yeah, I remember now. <laughs> uh, <laughs> because Dunsey has a little bit of dirt on Godfrey. He's already married. <gasps> to a local gal of the drunken persuasion called Molly Farron. If their dad finds out, he'll disinherit Godfrey and make Dunsey his heir. First of all, Godfrey, have you considered that maybe you were the reason Molly drinks? So Dunsey's like, here's an idea. Why don't you sell your last remaining valuable possession, your horse, lovely wildfire. And Godfrey ultimately realises he's in a corner. He decides to let Dunsey sell Wildfire for him at a local horse fair. Just, if Dunsey lived today, he would just, like, be mainlining four locos and have a lot of Def Leppard on his iPod. The next day, Dunsey sets off to sell the horse, and he passes that old weirdo Silas Marner's place. Now, he's heard rumours over the years that Silas has a lot of money, and he wonders if maybe he and Godfrey could sort of frat boy bully Silas into lending them some money, put the old squeeze on him. So Dunsey gets a neighbor at the horse fair to buy the horse. The neighbor guy says, okay, bring the horse over to the stables in a bit. And Dunsey's like, sure thing, dummy. Oh, did you say race the horse over to the stables as recklessly as possible? You know, just for shits and gigs, even though everything's going my way. Potentially laming the horse and ruining this whole deal, because don't mind if I do. But (laughs) Dunsey doesn't just lame the horse. Oh no, that would be for far lesser psychopaths. Instead, Dunsey jumps the horse over a spiked fence, accidentally impaling it. Now, I can't believe, Daniel, that I get to reuse this very specific Tess of the Durbervilles joke, but he shanked Seabiscuit in the motherfucking chest. And then he leaves the horse to die. So now Godfrey doesn't have a horse and doesn't have a hundred pounds, and Dunsey just whistles and walks away from the horrible death whinnies. But I cannot wait to see how this unfolds when that dude comes to repo the horse in the morning. Dunstan, he's got to go home to Ravelo on foot. So... Oh my god, is he okay? He's just waving <laughs> his riding whip around in that sort of classic squire's asshole son style. I'm familiar, I'm yeah, familiar, yeah. Like, it's his brother, Godfrey's own personalized whip. Yeah, nice birthday present for, you know, we're um, releasing safe from my, from my shelf. We're doing a line whips. of whips. Yeah, it's the S-N-M-F-M-S <laughs> line. Exclusively on QVC. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that is beautiful, isn't it? It was a very handsome whip. Find the phallus yeah. much. Also, remember the whip. Please, listeners, remember the whip. How could we forget? Yeah. <laughs> He's going into the outskirts of Ravelo and he sees the lamplight from Silas's hut. And he's like, oh yeah, I initially considered uh, extorting money from the old staring simpleton. Maybe I'll peep my head in and see what he's up to. What a sassy little prick! Silas is out. Dunsey immediately searches the joint for Silas's famous hoard. And almost, almost uh, straight away finds out where it is, doesn't he? Because he knows the sort of proverbial places where misers <laughs> hide their gold. It's under a 
squeaky floorboard, and he just picks it up and wanders out with it. The perfect crime. Especially because Silas is always home. Like, he just sits there and works 24-7. So it's just like, check out Duncey here manifesting. Yeah, exactly, yeah. He gets back from this, like, errand that Eve's on, and he's like, it's been two or three minutes, I'll go and admire my hoard. And he almost senses it, doesn't he? It's like, uh-oh, there's fuckery afoot. Exactly, yeah. It's gone! Silas panics, and he immediately assumes... Jem Rodney, <laughs> oh, Jem Rodney, local poacher. He immediately assumes that he must have nabbed the dosh. He heads to the Rainbow, the local pub. But all the patrons are like, Silas, seriously, it could not have been the poacher. He's been sitting here with us all day. And Silas feels- Just like, enjoying a pint of old Tweaky. Old Tweaky, what's that? <laughs> I don't know, it just sounds like some kind of naff real ale that they would drink. So everyone's sort of in an uproar about it. And some people are like, oh, poor Silas, he's so honest. Other people are like, I don't know, maybe he stole the money himself in order to extort, you know, sympathy from people or something. And some other people are like, well, Silas, maybe you got what you deserved since you never go to church and you love your money too much. Everyone has a lot of opinions. The Silas is kind of, it's like he's walking through a YouTube comments section. How much did, let's, you know, how much did Silas lose? We're off. Yeah, yeah, we're off. Gird your loins, listeners. He lost 272 pounds, 12 shillings and sixpence. Now, what's that in today's money? Well, according to a little known... Uh, and very useful tool, measuringworth.com. That amount of money in 1810, which is what I'm assuming the novel is set, today would be, just in terms of pure inflation, £20,000. In terms of labour earnings, so, you know, in relation to the average wage, £259,000. That's a lot of money already, isn't it? In terms of the relative income, so, in, you know, in relation to average wealth, £265,000. In terms of... As a share of the economy, £1,359,000. Silas Marner was a pretty wealthy miser, wasn't he? You look so proud of yourself right now. Just look at you sitting on that chair like you're doing it a favor. Well... Schooling us all. Godfrey Cass, remember him? Local could-do-better squire son. He's unsurprised to learn that Duncy hasn't come home from selling wildfire. Yeah, Duncy, after he pocketed the cash, he went missing. Godfrey assumes he's at an inn somewhere. Anyway, he's got bigger fish to fry. He needs to romance Nancy Lameter. Oh, Godfrey is useless. He's good for wringing his hands and mooning over Saint Nancy, our lady of patently dull desire, and not much else. Meanwhile, the whole village is still gossiping about the robbery. And there's a whole lots of funny kind of suppositions, aren't they? Somebody finds a tinderbox in a ditch nearby, and they all think it's the kind of key to the mystery, <laughs> don't they? Others think it's a peddler who had recently passed through town a few days ago. The guy, he wore earrings. So, that's a bad sign. Some think Silas was somehow in on it. Oh, just thanks, Woodward and Bernstein. You cracked it, guys. You cracked it. Meanwhile, Silas, he's just kind of gets back to the weaving, but it's not in a kind of perverse, insular way. Now it's in a kind of... He's moaning while he does it. Like you right here, fucked up ghost of the Protestant work ethic. It's some kind of like, you know, sh shriving, shriving something. I just bet that looks really normal. Later on, Godfrey finds out from the guy that was, you know, had intended to buy Wildfire that the horse had, uh, you know, met its untimely end. And he realizes that he's probably going to have to come clean to his dad about having given the rent money to Duncey. And his dad is like, oh, for the love of God, one, I'm going to sell Duncey's own horse then to pay for this rent money that he stole from me. Two, he is no longer welcome in this house, so I hope I never see him again. Three, 
why did you let him do this? That's a super weird decision. And four, when are you going to marry St. Nancy, Our Lady of Disgusting Patriarchal Obedience? And this is when Godfrey, who's about to tell about the secret wife, he just starts scuffing the toe of his shoe going, I don't know. <laughs> so the dad is like, okay, cards on the table, is Dunsey blackmailing you? Because this seems like a blackmail setup if I've ever seen it. And Godfrey basically screams, no blackmail here, sir. And he sort of death rolls out of the conversation. So C plus for effort. Christmas is approaching <laughs> and the village is still talking about the mana mystery mana gate well in fairness netflix hasn't been invented yet so no it has not this is their tiger king this is their making a murderer the villagers they all start to pity silas don't they and the richer locals start to bring in leftovers from their christmas parties including some pigs petitos 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 i say petitos you say Pants pigs trotters. Old Mr. Macy. You know him, don't you? Nope. All <laughs> no. right. Well, let me tell you who he is. He's a kind of a funkular local blowhard. And he comes to encourage Silas to immerse himself in village life. Also, Mrs. Dolly Winthrop, a kind-hearted and pragmatic peasant woman. She also comes with her son Aaron to give Silas some lard cakes. Flat paste-like articles, much esteemed in Ravelow. Hmm, that sounds nice, doesn't it? Yeah, paste-like articles. Can I ask you a question about your food obsession, which you have made very present in this podcast? Is this like a repressed British thing where if you eat enough, you don't have enough room for feelings? The Silas and Dolly friendship is my favorite thread in the book because they do a lot of sort of cultural exchange stuff, don't they? So Dolly's this kind of illiterate peasant, Silas an alienated prole, but they made it work, damn it. They're, They're good pals. Meanwhile, over at the sea of Squire Cass, preparations are being made for a New Year's party for the local elite. Nobody is sorry that Duncey has so far missed the festivities, you know, nor do they, quote, fear that his absence would be too long. The guy's a Christmas ruiner. Every family has one. And if you think that yours doesn't, I assure you that it's you. Finally, we get to see St. Nancy, our lady of obnoxious virtue, who is headed to the party on a miserable winter night. And Nancy is portrayed as just being so great because she's dressed in a very plain, sensible dress. You know, she's in her traveling clothes, but she still manages to look really pretty and delicate and womanly. Heck, she even looks more babetastic in comparison with her shitty clothes. So, and they just go on and on about it. I just cannot fucking stand this woman. Can we have this bit? Can we uh, keep going? Yeah, 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 please. I need a break. Can we have this bit? Listeners, I want you to remember... That very strange line in Beowulf (laughs) about Grendel's mother. Her onslaught was less only by as much as an Amazon warrior's strength is less than an armed man's when the hefted sword, its hammered edge and gleaming blade, slathered in blood, raises the sturdy borage off a helmet. Yeah, we read that about five times in Beowulf trying to figure out what the hell that even meant. Well... There's a new sentence in town. Uh, (laughs) Some women, I grant, would not appear to advantage seated on a pillion and attired in a drab joseph and a drab beaver bonnet with a crown resembling a small stewpan, semicolon, for a garment suggesting a coachman's greatcoat cut out under an exiguity of cloth that would only allow of miniature capes is not well adapted to conceal deficiencies of contour, nor is drab a colour that will throw sallow cheeks into lively contrast. 
full stop. Okay, that's one sentence. It was all the greater triumph to Miss Nancy Lamater's beauty that she looked thoroughly bewitching in that costume. That's crazy, isn't it? What's going on? Why? That's, that's such a classic Elliot subclause sentence. That sentence hurts like a hangover. Yeah, it does, doesn't it? Yeah. Let's get back on her shit, right? So, St. Nancy, our lady of the drab beaver bonnets, is all pissy because she has to go enjoy hospitality at Squire Cass's mansion and rub elbows with the muckety-mucks. And worst of all, Godfrey, the man she's desperately in love with, will be there because life is just so hard for St. Nancy. What a horrible evening. So, really, this is what her issue is? She's crazy about Godfrey and knows that he's crazy about her, but she's vowed never to marry him because of his reprehensible lifestyle, which, okay, all right, you know, I, I love a woman with some self-respect, even if she's this prim little Puritan, fine. The problem is that even though she thinks Godfrey is a bit of a cad, she's fallen in love with him, and in her mind, once you fall in love with somebody, you have to love them for life to the total and utter exclusion of anyone else. So she decides to take a vow of eternal spinsterhood since she and Godfrey can just apparently never be together. <laughs> uh, the prefab I have here is, pardon me, ma'am, but you've had your virtue signal on for the last eight miles. <laughs> <laughs> Once at the party... St. Nancy, our lady of the disapproving cooter, goes upstairs to get ready. And there are just some nasty little biddies there, the Mrs. Gunn. Oh, I love them. Who are from the big city, and they're dressed within an inch of their lives, and just absolutely chartreuse with envy when they see this beautiful, dour little Nancy. She's just so radiant with purity and wholesomeness and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, did you know that despite all of her family's money, St. Nancy even churns her own butter? Just kill me daniel so then we are given a wonderful brief moment of respite when nancy's ugly older sister priscilla shows up and priscilla like flings the doors open and she's all like what up bitches i am in the house i'm gonna babble at you about how i don't need a man i make my own choices oh and you bitches in the corner being nasty about my sister's rustic beauty that's cool i'm ugly and i own it you guys are ugly, and you should own it. It's freeing. She can keep all those irritating men away from us, my ugly comrades. Hey, wait, where are you going? Was it something I said? First of all, can I just say that I am obsessed with Priscilla, and when I die, I want to be buried like a dog at her feet? All of this summary so far, I wrote in one sentence. Yeah, you and I it, do this. It all goes a bit Jane Austen at this point. Lots of gossiping and eyeballing at the party. <laughs> <laughs> For the users, it's the key bit. It's such a tonal shift. It's so weird. And it's just for... It is odd, yeah. It's just for one scene. It feels like a pastiche, doesn't it, almost? Yes, yeah, yeah it does. So, okay, then, but then it gets weird, right? Where <laughs> they, they're getting dressed from the party, and St. Nancy, our lady of petty demands, has insisted from time immemorial that she and Priscilla always must dress alike. So everyone will know that the two of them are sisters. And can I just remind you, please, that they are a prominent family in a very small town. Everyone knows. So this seems really weird and unnecessary. The party gets underway. And Nancy and Godfrey, they're pretty sweet on each other. But he keeps kind of equivocating because of his secret wife. He's living the worst possible episode of The Bachelor. More importantly, it should be noted that certain privileged villagers are allowed to watch the ball from the spectators' benches. You're cheer captain and I'm on the bleachers. It's Taylor Swift, isn't it? That's what it's like. <laughs> I um, love it when you call Taylor 
Yeah, I mean, it was ten years ago, but you know, it's still sort of pop culture. They all kind of commentate on the dancing, and we get sort of more funny country stuff. This is Mr. Macy. Oh, God, I love Mr. Macy. The squire's pretty spring, considered in his weight, and he stamps uncommon well. But Mr. Lamater beats them all for shapes. You can see he holds his head like a sodger, and he isn't so cushiony as most of the oldest gentle folks. They run fat in general, and he's got a fine leg. The parson's nimble enough, but he hasn't got much of a leg, and blah, 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 blah. That's what Daniel talks like in real life, Yeah, actually. that's my real voice. Finally, I'm allowed to live my life as I... <laughs> live your truth, yeah, Daniel. Yeah, 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 exactly, yeah. And we get a little bit of a peasant queer reading, don't we, which I was pleased to see. So Ben Winthrop, husband to Dolly Winthrop, is also there, and he is like... Oh, Mrs. Osgood, she's a pretty nimble dancer, and Mr. Macy is having none of it, is he? I don't heed how the women are made. They wear neither coat nor breeches. You can't make much out of their shapes. So, he likes looking at the nice men's legs, doesn't he? He's Don't like, we all? Yeah. Yeah, and the guests are all just really invested in Godfrey and Nancy getting together. They're just trying to get these two kids to mate like they're the last goddamn pandas on earth. So are you guys ready for a telenovela moment? Because yes, please. you're about to get one. Godfrey's secret wife, Molly, has planned her vengeance on Godfrey for abandoning her. She's about to crash this party uh-huh. and announce their marriage, completely ruining his chances with St. Nancy, Our Lady of the Ice Cold Cockblock. But Molly is bringing with her their child. <laughs> Does Godfrey even know at this point he has a child? Or, you know, has it just been that long since he's seen his wife? It's also revealed that Molly is not just a drunk, but an opium fiend as well. And the novel kind of loses me here because it really doesn't express very much sympathy for Molly. I mean, Elliot more or less calls her white trash and kind of says she brought it on herself. And I just, I, I'm yes, a Yes, there is a bit like that, yeah. Elliot is not brilliant with any form of, like, disability. Yeah. So the night is really miserable and Molly and the baby get bogged down in the snow, not knowing how close they are to the cast mansion. And Molly looks for some, like, comfort in her opium, like in the middle of this blizzard. She takes some and then decides it's to... It's New Year's Eve, the minute. You are... You, are <laughs> you can treat yourself are, a little yeah, bit. The old tot of laudanum on her. Yeah. Well, yeah, but she takes some and then decides to take a little nap in the snow, so... Mm, okay, maybe not then. So the toddler, who's like, it is shit cold outside, I'm gonna go explore while mom sleeps it off or whatever, she toddles right up to Silas Marner's nearby house. I mean, he did, in fairness to him, he did baby-proof his house, but they keep getting in. <laughs> and he's gone into one of his convenient trances. That's just classic him. So the toddler, like, just opens the door and goes and curls up by the fire and goes to sleep. Silas wakes up and sees a giant pile of gold toddler hair in front of the fire, mistakes it for his stolen coins, and thinks, My money! It came home! (laughs) So I was kind of expecting a full, like, up plot line where this grumpy septuagenarian slowly comes around to a small child, but that character arc happens in, like, three seconds here. It's also, like, can we just say, this is the dumbest, most obvious simile ever, the child's golden hair is like the Goldilocks. There's more to life than gold. Oh my god, Rumpelstiltskin, f*** that. Goldilocks and the three really rich, <laughs> recently robbed bears. <laughs> so Silas puts the kid to bed and he thinks, man, it's kind of a rough night out. Like, this toddler did not get here on her own. So 
if this is going to follow the Rumpelstiltskin plot, like George Eliot has set us up for, he's going to go outside and he's going to find Molly and there's going to be some sort of like seedy deal for him to keep the kid and maybe he'll imprison Molly and make her weave for him, right? So just the plot thickens yeah. in this moment. But then he goes outside and he sees Molly's corpse about two feet away. The plot thinnens. Quote, there was something more than the bush before him. There was a human body with the head sunk low in the furs and half covered with the shaken snow. It's kind of a sad bit, isn't it? The party's ongoing. You know, we're back at the party. (laughs) Yeah? Cut. It's like a cut. Imagine that. Like in a film. (laughs) Cut. Back to the party. It's ongoing. People are dancing around. Mr. Macy's ogling people. Silas turns up with the child looking for the village doctor. A woman may be dead! Godfrey Cass clocks his own daughter in Silas's arms. He hears the news and, quote, feels a great throb. There was one terror in his mind at that moment. It was that the woman might not be dead. <laughs> Jesus Christ. That was an evil terror, an ugly inmate to have found a nestling place in Godfrey's kindly disposition. So he knew he had a kid then. Yeah. A kid that he left with no financial support, with a woman he knew was a sort of danger to herself as a drug addict, and he did not even check in or help them out. Great, great, great. He done wrong. He done wrong. Some of the village women volunteer to take the child off Silas's hands, but he can't part with her. I can't let it go. It's come to me. I've a right to keep it. That's how Silas talks. He's from Manchester. Silas wants to keep the kid. The Doctor and a bunch of other villagers, they all head over to inspect Molly, and she is indeed dead. Godfrey suppresses any visible display of relief, good guy, and he's like, great, I can marry Nancy now. This is a Maury episode! This is why my copy of the book is in rough shape, because I was trying to shake all the bullshit out. Yeah. Silas is pretty firm about keeping her, so Godfrey's like, well, there's a guinea for your troubles. Uh, and there's nothing, you know, it's not like I owe or anything. It's just noblesse oblige, you know. Um, what a good guy. Yeah, <laughs> what a good fellow. And aside from his marred conscience, Godfrey's got away for scot-free. So he's like, I'm going to go back to the party now. <laughs> <laughs> Still time to catch the DJ set. I'm going to go and romance Nazi. So that's a pretty good night for Godfrey, I think. So Silas takes care of the baby for a bit and his buddy Dolly helps out and the village is really surprised by this turn of events but thinks, you know, this is actually pretty sweet. And Dolly talks the non-religious Silas into baptizing the baby and they realize that he needs to think of a name for her. I genuinely, this is a genuine question, I wonder what Molly called her. We never find out what the baby's name is no, before. No, that's a good point, yeah. Does, does Godfrey even know? Because I don't think, does he They talk about the possibility that it might have been baptised twice, don't they? But they never actually <laughs> confirm that, nor under what name it would have therefore been baptised. Silas decides to name the baby Hepzibah. But, I, I mean, I guess, in fairness to Silas, I guess you don't realise how many people you hate until you have to name a baby. He decides to call the baby Epi for short. So he gets Epi baptized and decides, you know what, he might as well rebaptize himself. And they start going to church, and the baby warms his heart cockles and turns him into a real person, and the community just loves him. And they have these delightful long afternoons playing in meadows and dancing in sunlight, and it's all perfectly revolting. I was very moved by all this. Let me just read this bit that I'm afraid to say I was moved by it. 
As the weeks grew into months, the child created fresh and fresh links between his life and the lives from which he had hitherto shrunk continually. Unlike the gold which needed nothing, Epi was a creature of endless claims and ever-growing desires, seeking and loving sunshine, making trial of everything with trust and new joy, and stirring the human kindness in all eyes that looked on her. Pretty touched by that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Daniel, you, you're a big old softie. I am a softie. I think you might be like bread or memory foam. That's how soft you are. I was like, oh, it's going to be loads of like hilarious three men and a baby style scenes with this kind of miser trying to raise the baby. Not only are we more than halfway through the novel before he gets the baby, there's hardly any of those scenes, are there? But between the moments of psychomoral development, we get this. Epi is three. She's developed a fine capacity for mischief and for devising ingenious ways of being troublesome. Ha ha ha. That's what toddlers are like. Dolly Winthrop tells Silas he's going to have to discipline her. Here are his two options. One, smack her. That's my vote. Corporal punishment, yeah. We, are, we very much espouse smacking kids on this podcast. I think I can speak, <laughs> I can speak for Daniel and myself. It's both. spanking season and I'm a hankering for a spankering. <laughs> So, that's option one. What? That's The Simpsons. <laughs> option two, shut her up once in the coal hole. That'll scare him straight. During those periods of his workday, he ties Epi to the loom with a very kind of long bit of linen so she doesn't wander off. One day, he leaves his scissors to one side, you know, like you meant to do near small children. <laughs> she finds the scissors and cuts the linen and wanders off. Silas is terrified that she may have fallen in the nearby flooded quarry. Remember the flooded quarry, everyone? He thinks Epi's dead. Ha ha ha. No, she's not. Epi, she done wrong. Silas is like, now's time to try out the old coal hole trick. So he briefly puts her in the coal hole as a punishment. And she comes out and is like, well, I won't do it again. Later that day, she's covered in soot. <laughs> Joke's on you, sucker! Yeah. I love the cold! Yeah, she's been back in there. Yeah, the punishment failed. Silas can't bear to hit her, which re- listeners will remember was option one. And here's the quote. So Epi was reared without punishment. She knew nothing of frowns and denials. So his parenting strategy is, remember Epi, safety third. Yes. Yeah. Good, let's see how this turns out. Paul Ravelo is very impressed with Silas's parenting. Idiots. And in- <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> there's, there's lots of funny bits about that. I'm not going to go into details. They attribute his parenting skill in part to his um, hermaphroditic profession, don't they? Queer reading. Yeah, they say, You're partly as handy as a woman, for weaving comes next to spinning. So, because he's a weaver, he's kind of like sort of half a lady already. <laughs> Fellas, is it gay to touch flax? All's going well for Epi and Silas. Things, meanwhile, are a bit more ambiguous for our good friend Godfrey Cass, who is keen to do right by his daughter at some point. Yeah, at some point. (laughs) Without incurring suspicion. In the meantime, Duncy, remember him? I miss him more and more with every passing sentence. (laughs) He is gone forever. I just, I cannot wait for the third act that Elliot has clearly set up where Dunsey's gonna come back and just stir Go this motherfucker. Shit. 
Yes. <laughs> uh, <yeah>. The first <laughs> time I read this, I was genuinely like, Duncy is gonna come back and, oh, actually, it's when they talk about her hair. I, I was like, he's gonna seduce Epi. It's when she, like, grows up, Whoa. when they're, like, 16 years later. That's great. But then there's obviously, like, the, he's her uncle and nobody knows. And, like, Whoa. so, because, but, like, that's what they're setting up. Go on, then, yeah, give us your uh, Chekhov's gun reading. Well, so we've set up this whole thing with Epi. The kid's spoiled. And Duncy is mysteriously gone for all this time. So we have that. The kid's descended from debauches. Yes, exactly. But also, there's this huge fixation on her hair. Mm. And if there's one thing I want you to take away from this podcast, it's that in Victorian literature, if you fixate on a woman's sumptuous hair, that... That equates it with sexuality. Trouble brewing. Yes. So, and the fact, you know, she has, she has no discipline whatsoever. They've loaded Chekhov's hair and yeah. Chekhov's duncy. Like All it's, it takes, isn't it? Two Chekhov's things. You're going to get a che- Chekhov off the thon. Basically, literary theory. <laughs> 16 years later. So, Effie has managed, miraculously, not to die. She's grown up. Squire Cass is dead. Duncy is still off doing God knows what. Godfrey ended up marrying St. Nancy, our lady of backpedaling oaths. Because uh, if you recall, she said never on God's green earth would she marry him. And she still knows nothing of his first wife or Epi. Epi, we're told, is very pretty with untamable ringlets. Quote, she is a blonde, dimpled girl of 18 who has vainly tried to chastise her curly auburn hair into smoothness under her brown bonnet. And the little ringlets burst away from the restraining comb. She's grown up. She didn't die. She apparently hasn't been sexually promiscuous, except some guy in church is completely perving on Epi's hair. Turns out it's Dolly's son, Aaron. I love that guy. He's got a nice fustian suit. Mm. Isn't that? Oh, that's sexy look, and he's yeah. going to get all up in them petticoats, mark my words. Yeah. It's not going to end well. Except, Aaron proposes to Epi, and she accepts, and she's loving and dutiful and meek, and requests only that Silas be able to live with them, because she could not bear for them to be separated. Just, George Elliot, you are giving very misleading parental like advice. That. So, children are allowed to do any old damn thing, even if it, it's very likely going to kill them, with zero threat of punishment, and they they turn out great. Epi's a nice girl, isn't she? She's not whatever her hair implies. <laughs> yeah, that's just, just, yeah, Elliot's really working against strong convention here. I'm not bad, I'm just curled that way. Um... They're on their way back from church. The whole f- uh, See, we didn't even talk about that, but I really like that, the way that this, the set piece for the 16... is making such a good film. The, six, the 16 years later bit, they're all at church and they're all leaving church, aren't they? So we get little portraits of them as they leave. And, quote, Epi was now aware that her behaviour was under observation, but it was only the observation of a friendly donkey <laughs> browsing with a log fastened at his foot. A meek donkey... Not scornfully critical of human trivialities, <laughs> but thankful to share in them, if possible, by getting his nose scratched. And Epi did not fail to gratify him with their usual notice, though it was attended with the inconvenience of his following them, painfully, up to the very door of their home. Is this literature's most complex donkey? <laughs> I'm trying to think of another one. Eeyore? The yeah. donkey from Animal Farm. Oh yeah. Dapple, Sancho Panther's donkey. He's not very complex. 
Well, if you can think of a more complex literary donkey, listeners, I'd like to hear it. Mana is well esteemed by the town. Everyone thinks that his heroism in raising Epi means that his money is due back any day now, because that's how that works, isn't it? It's kind of, they believe in sort of karma, don't they? Like, He's generally friendly with his neighbours and has unburdened himself of the circumstances of his arrival. So he, he tells Dolly Winthrop in particular about the whole Lantern Yard thing. But Dolly says, well, maybe you should go back and see if any new evidence has come to light. So, by the way, this is just a side point. It's kind of completely irrelevant to the plot of the novel, but I just thought a little bit of local colour. The farmers are draining the flooded quarry to irrigate their fields. It's a bit of agricultural colour. That, that is true. You know what? We've always said that on this podcast. We, we are primarily an agricultural podcast. It's like the Arches. We have an agricultural advisor. That's, it's, why, it's why we're here, and frankly, it's why you're here. So, everything's going great for Epi and Silas and all that. How's St. Nancy doing? Our lady of domestic bliss. Because she cannot have children, and that is why she must polish the house. Hey. In fairness, when Squire Cass had it, it was a real tip. Nancy and Godfrey have been having trouble having kids, and she feels as though she's failed her husband, and she's trying to make up for it by dusting every 30 seconds and polishing the chamber pots and lint-rollering the ceiling and recalibrating the chandeliers and whatever other busy work she can make for herself. Uh, the prefab I have here is Fuck your dust-free Jesus parlor and all who sail in her. I hate you. Change your heart or die. <laughs> So, honest to God, the book says that her hobbies are not leaving the house and reading the Bible. Same. For the last several years, when it became clear that they weren't going to be able to have kids, Godfrey really wanted to adopt. And specifically, Godfrey wanted to adopt that lovely orphan in the village being raised by that weird weaver. But uh, St. Nancy, Our Lady of Self-Flagellation, decided that adopting a child would bring them joy, and that's sinful, and you know, it was against God's will. And they... And- Godfrey says, right, Epi's turned out all right, and she's adopted. And she's like, the only adopted kid I ever heard of was transported when it was 23. So you've got to be careful. If you adopt a kid, they might turn out to be Australian. (laughs) (laughs) Twist. No. Yeah. But everything's going so well. The flooded quarry, you remember that? It's not flooded anymore. It's that, but the, how could that be related? Well, well yeah, because it's, that's just it's a, a basic agricultural procedure. But of trivia. Yeah. yeah, it's completely dry. Something has been found lying at the bottom. Someone, I should say. It's a skeleton with a rather nice personalised whip. It's Duncy Cass. How did he, he die? Did he drown on his own bullshit? On the night that he robbed Silas Manor all those many years ago, he... Wandered into the quarry and drowned. Say what you want about Duncy Cass. He lived every day like it was his last. Especially this one. Godfrey is disturbed by the news, as well you might be. And he tells Nancy, Everything comes to light sooner or later. When I married you, I hid something from you. That woman Mana found dead in the snow. Epi's mother. That wretched woman was my wife. Epi is my child. This really is an episode of Maury. Yep. The pair decide to make up for lost time and go and get go and get their baby back. Go and get Epi. Yeah, so now, let's just get this straight. They're going to go down to Silas Marner's house and adopt a grown-ass woman. For, for, for why? For whomst? It's like Roman times. 
Fucking Ben Hur. Oh, 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 okay. What's his name? Charlton Heston is like 40 in Ben Hur and he gets, <laughs> he gets adopted, so. Big old day for Silas. He's just found out that his daughter is engaged. He's discovered who stole his money and he's had it returned. And then some rich ass people bust into his house and try to adopt his adult daughter. He actually says that though, doesn't he? Now my gold's back. Maybe, you know, you'll disappear somehow. He predicts it. Yeah, but she doesn't. So Epi's just like super all unimpressed by all of this. She's like, yeah, I have a dad. I'm good. And there's just this, like loads of back and forth. And Godfrey kind of turns into a real prick saying, this is a duty you owe your lawful father. And Epi says, you're not my real dad, actually. And you're what, not my real dad. What are you going to do about it? And Godfrey's like, my own petard. It hoisted me. It says to Silas, she may marry some low working man. That's the, that's his biggest fear. I'm sorry, and again, sir, where were you when she was, like, at risk of death, She would have married a low common guy then. You probably wouldn't have married him. <gasps> Daniel, no, keep that smut off our podcast. Sorry. Excuse I'm me. I'm so sorry. Godfrey and Nancy go home, and they sort of wallow, and they wring their hands, which is what they always do best. Right. They finally get yeah. it through their thick skulls that they should probably just leave her alone and just maybe leave her some money after they die, and that's it. We're on the final part, listeners. It's been a long old afternoon. Yeah, calm down. We're reaching the end. Chill the fuck out. The Marners. <laughs> the Marners have had an eventful couple of days. And now, Silas wants to make peace with his past. After 30 years since coming to Ravelo, he decides to go, go back north to visit Lantern Yard. They arrive in Silas's hometown and it's completely changed. It's now a great manufacturing town. They eventually find where Lantern Yard was, but it's gone. There's a big factory there now. The old place is all swept away. Its congregations scattered. Silas will never get justice. Yeah, we never find out what happens to William and Sarah. They just like presumably get away with this. The point is that Silas is the winner because he managed to go south where industrialism hasn't happened and he can live in this nice town. William and Sarah, the assumption is they become further immiserated and proletarianized. Well, I wish them many unpleasant children. Yeah. The point is, it doesn't even really matter, right? Because Silas is happy. That's what. So, yeah. Ew, the best revenge is living well. I'm afraid so. Ew. The novel ends with the wedding of Epi and Aaron Winthrop. You won't be giving me away, father, Epi tells Silas. You'll only be taking Aaron to be a son to you. <laughs> It's so beautiful. Yeah, I know, yeah, come on, don't. You're gonna, make, you're gonna set me off. Nancy provided Epi's dress. Yeah, Nancy's still on the scene. It's fine, everyone's made friends. Uh, Was it her dress with the fucking beaver bonnet? Because I'd be like, thanks, no thanks. Epi and Aaron move into Marna's cottage. They do it up. Oh, father, said Epi. What a pretty home ours is. I think nobody could be happier than we are. That's the last line. Barf. It's a bit of a sad ending, really. <laughs> Do, would you like some casting? Yes, please. We're dealing a lot in this book with the silence of God. And there's there's an ever so slightly cartoonish, fableish character to this, right? It's yeah. sort of it's like a grim comedy. So a kind of Death of God cartoon. Ingmar Bergman. Oh right. He does a lot with 
comedic elements in very, very serious works. He deals a lot with fable and folklore yeah. and things like that. That's pretty good. Let's talk about the <laughs> 1990s sort of sentimental comedy adaptation starring Steve Martin. And it's set in the, it's set in the 90s. I watched the trailer, it looks awful. I feel genuinely distressed by this. A lot of the things that they do only really work because it's the 1810s. Yes, yeah, for sure. And they wouldn't work in the 1990s. Like a weird man who found a baby wouldn't necessarily... Get to keep the baby. baby. Yeah, that's... And a weird man who had loads of money wouldn't necessarily just have it in his house. And if he did have it in his house, it wouldn't necessarily get preserved if it fell to the bottom of a lake. They make it so it does because it's some antique coins. This do- a lot of this doesn't make they any sense. They change it so Godfrey's more of a villain. I think they change it so that the Godfrey character kills Duncey as well. Nice. Yeah, so there you go. I so, respect... So, yeah, sorry for you. Frankly, yeah. well, f- no, but frankly, like, you were talking about Godfrey being a complex character. I think that would have been a really interesting moment of, I'm a man of faith in God and I'm trying to be better for this woman, but, like, then tapping into these baser instincts. That would have... I've got this bend of a brother. <laughs> he is a worse person than me. It would be better for everyone if he just didn't exist. Like, that would have been a much more interesting turn. Guntsy cast should be destroyed. Humanely <laughs> destroyed. No, but but I think in terms of making Godfrey a much more interesting character, I'm like that that was the thing that needed to happen. So now we have our segment Bad Goodreads Reviews. I didn't like this book. I don't regard this book as a deserved classic. It should have been relegated to anonymity. Life isn't fair. I don't want to sound like a real sentimental type. But at the end of the year. Yeah. I've enjoyed every book. Have you? Yeah. Have you actually? Yeah, I have, yeah. Daniel, I wasn't expecting that. I really was not expecting Even that. Even Orlando. You weren't that fussed by Pamela, because I remember you bitching about it. That's like, the thing, but like doing the podcast actually made it, it better. It made, yeah. yeah. It, well, and, and there were parts of it that I did like. But, the, but this is why it's so important to talk about media with people in your life. Like, all, there, there are so many books that I'd be like, well, that was shit. The number of times you and I have talked to each other into going, God, I hated that, and we chit-chat about it, and we're like, okay, but the, the 19th thing was also great, and then mm. like we sort of like are like, shit, did we just convince ourselves that we liked yeah. it? Analysis. The kind of Elliot's sense of plotting is quite counterintuitive, and as you say here, there's a lot of unresolved plot threads. I, I could see why people would not like this, because... She gears it up to be a sort of fable, so you expect certain notes from this. This is very, very clearly a Rumpelstiltskin narrative. And then she undoes this, and she's also working in the period of sensation fiction, which, again, has a certain, I don't want to say formula, but, like, you expect certain things. Like, if you load Chekhov's gun, it's much like a whodunit. You expect to see returns. And she doesn't do that because she's a burgeoning realist, and that's occasionally frustrating in the way that the real world is frustrating. But it's almost deliberate, isn't it? Yeah, oh, of course it's deliberate. In terms of unresolved plot threads, or, you know, Chekhov's gun not going off, the subplot with the tin box and the suspicious foreign peddler that comes to but we know nothing. that's stupid yes yeah. and and okay so fine, that's then. almost telling us that not to overinterpret things isn't right it? yes yeah. so that's fine but i just want to <laughs> there's a funny bit silas's weird trances which completely peter out after he gets epi yeah are they just like sorry i was acting weird it was purely to forward the plot 
Why are there so many parallels to Rumpelstiltskin? If that's I like that. I like it's, the, it's an anti-Rumpelstiltskin story. Okay, isn't it? fine. I'll I'll entertain that. She's adopting the folktale models, and she talks a lot about folk knowledge, doesn't she? But the it actual ends, execution is a bit different. But it ends on again a, a sort of folktale, impossibly, absurdly coincidental happy ending where everyone gets what they want. But like she departs from. Well, not really. Like, Godfrey and Nancy didn't. But the, they just like, like to suck it up. But again, the people who she centers the narrative around, not Godfrey and Nancy, who are kind of shitty people, yeah. they get exactly the karmic retribution they deserve. But Silas never got the whole Lantern Yard thing resolved, in fairness. So that's. But, but Dolly says, like, you don't need to focus on petty vengeance because actually this has led you to your but best But nevertheless, life. it's like a, that, him going to Lantern Yard and it not being resolved is like a sort of homeopathic dose of realism. To make us yes, ignore the fact that the happy but, ending is so absurd. But but I actually don't know that it's that homeopathic. The fact that it's gone, the people are just it, like it is no, that whole world. It is no more. The people are scattered. Like that, they've been rendered irrelevant. And that 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 is actually a a fair bit of justice. Where it's just like, and you've been wiped from the face of the yeah. earth. Like that's actually a bit of poetic justice, isn't Schmited. it? Smited. Kinda. Yeah. We also she works overtime setting epi up as a sexual free spirit only to do nothing with it you could you could have given me one sentence that did something with this rather than building 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 oh i'm engaged to aaron it's all good we're fine also the other thing is why have priscilla there at all what is why mr macy there he's more local color they set up priscilla to like do something or be some sort of commentary but then she just comes to nothing we need either no priscilla or we needed 50 percent more priscilla <laughs> priscilla is too big for this novel she's too lively she's too like you need to make her more central or you need to get rid of her because she's she's the shining star in the firmament man and she's this book isn't big enough to contain her it's a very very bad proportion Priscilla is basically Marion Halcombe in The Woman in White, which came out, what, the same year or the year before. George Eliot really wants to be writing about Priscilla, but that's that's a sort of thing for silly lady novels, even though Wilkie Collins wrote it, not a woman. But George Eliot clearly wants to be writing sensation fiction. Oh. I disagree. I think the mess- the plot here is philosophical and sociological. It's not about individuals. She can't stop herself from including all of these little genre hints that she's clearly fascinated by. Oh yeah, no, that's the thing. Like, she's clearly like. But it's like a sort of it's like a child's guide to German idealism. That's what the book is. I, it's like a kind of sort of like, oh, see, even in the country that you know the principles of Hegel persist. In that's the point of I think the book. That's a, I, I don't want to be rude here, but I think that's a slightly snotty understanding, in the spirit of George Eliot. Of sensation fiction, in which it's providing quite its own philosophical and sociological no, issues. No, but I mean, like, you know what I mean. If you think about her contemporaries in the kind of realist tradition that really survived, the point there is that this is a sequence of events that doesn't really have any meaningful com- conclusion. That the characters in the world of the novel attribute meaning to it, but it's in fact the world we just live in an empty world that's meaningless. George Eliot is trying to go another way, and. You're right to take her up on it, to say that she finds a sense of conclusion in events that have previously happened, but not in the way that you would expect. You're right to say that that's a kind of coward's way out of genre conventions and also realism. And that's what Nietzsche's problem was, wasn't it? That she That she said you could have the Christian worldview and Christian values were real, even if God wasn't. And 
what you're describing is what Nietzsche had a go at her for. Once yeah. again, you and Nietzsche, <laughs> your best mates. <laughs> no, I thought it was a good book though. I, I enjoyed it. I think it's a weird book, right? It's like it's like it's, it's half sensation novel, half Dostoevsky or something it, like that's that. What that's it's, the weird thing about it. Right, so now we are on our one-year anniversary special. So Daniel's actually gotten us a very lovely little cake. It's very yeah. sweet. It's a discount cake. <laughs> Imagine that. I got it on discount. So I was looking up today some old emails when we were going, should we start a podcast? What should we call it? Would you like me to read you some of the other options we had? Please do, yeah. I remember them. Do you? Do you? They were very good. Do you? What? Can you remember one of them? One. Chaucer and Chaucer. You know, like Dumb and Dumber, but Chaucer. <laughs> <laughs> that was one. I, in fact, that's one that I haven't actually captured here. What? That's the best one. Carry on up the canon was a very recent one, wasn't it? Yeah, Daniel is still trying to rename our podcast. <laughs> Carry on up the canon. That's actually a good one. In yeah. fact, if I had heard that a year ago, no one would have liked that. Saving for myself is more innately funny. I think if you like Kenneth Williams, Carry on up the canon's good. <laughs> but we had loads more than this. Give us a few, yeah. But I've picked deliberately the worst ones: Snide and Prejudice. Everyone's done that. <laughs> This lit is lit. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. The whole... Because keep up with the young folks. The whole lit and caboodle. Your Wait, because like kit and caboodle. Kit and yeah. Caboodle. Right, okay, yeah. Your favorite, this was Daniel's brainchild, stick it tome. Stick yeah, it to me. Yeah, because when you read me. it, it's like stick it to me, but... You're just, you're a weird dude. <laughs> you're a weird dude, and I cherish it, and I celebrate it. And then your other one, which I actually liked, and this this is very almost the name of the podcast, Bibliobile. <laughs> I oh. forgot that. Bibliobile. That wow. was yours. I live it. I don't need to make <laughs> I don't need to make a podcast of it. I bloody live that. The the funny thing about asking Daniel to be my co-host for a podcast is that um he seemed to worry the maybe maybe you should tell it. What was your biggest worry? That I'd become the most famous. Man. <laughs> I <can't even> <laughs> that I'd become the most famous man in the world. I was just thinking about Byron when you know when he wrote *Child Harry's Pilgrimage*, and the next day he woke up and he was the most famous man in London. I was worried that I'd have a Byron experience. Also, you know, I don't want to sound like some kind of attention-hungry dweeb. Write in and say what your favourite books and episodes and Lee's favourite books and episodes. Don't worry, I can take the. I don't know if Abby can, but I can take the. No, I can't. So, we should give you some updates in terms of what we have planned. So, we we will be officially coming back on August 17th, 2022. In terms of season three plans, this is going to be a little bit of a shorter season. It's going to be 10 texts instead of 12 because... Whoa. And in the break, we're going to be releasing a... A series of blooper reels. I don't quite know yet how many because we still have, you know, this episode has yet to be finished probably at least a couple let's have a clue then for our next book in a month or so's time so we've had two texts this season that were 19th century masterpieces titled blank and blank we're gonna open season three with a third one please write into our email or tweet us at smfms underscore podcast please subscribe wherever you listen we have a tiktok and an instagram now which you can find 
on our Twitter feed. The, the links are available. Please let us know if you want us to cover any books. If you have any questions, maybe, maybe over the hiatus, if we get enough of these, we'll do an episode on just questions you have for us full stop. Not even texts you want, but just like questions about us. Very personal and intimate questions. Incredibly personal. Daniel, what conditioner do you use? Your hair looks amazing. It does. Thanks for listening to Save Me From My Shelf. Our music is The Overture to Don Giovanni by Mozart and cover art is by Catherine Wu. Our thanks to Aston University's Centre for Critical Inquiry and to Society and Culture for funding the startup of this podcast. Contact us at savemefrommyshelf at gmail.com or at smfms underscore podcast on Twitter. And do not... I'm going to remind you, do not forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Do not forget. Thank you.